Proctor here with some announcements before we get into this week's episode. RacketCon is October 7th and 8th at the University of Washington and includes one day of speakers and one day of collaborative hacking. Their keynote speakers are CS professors Dan Friedman, co-author of the classic reference Essentials of Programming Languages, and Will Burr, inventor of Minicameron. Details and tickets are available through the webpage at con.racket-lang.org. Celebrate the 10th anniversary of the release of Closure, October 12th through the 14th, at the Closure Con in Baltimore, Maryland. The schedule and speakers have been announced, and registration is open. For more information, visit 2017.closure-conj.org. Lambda World is back, taking place in Cadiz, Spain, on October 26th and 27th. Early bird tickets are sold out, but student tickets and regular price tickets are still available. For more information, visit www.lambda.world. Code Mesh will be taking place the 8th and 9th of November. Keynote speakers David Turner and Margot Seltzer are already confirmed. Speakers have been announced and early bird ticket sales have started. For more details and to register, visit www.codemesh.io. MoonConf will be taking place in Phoenix, Arizona, November 9th through the 11th. MoonConf is a three-day conference for the functional programming community to learn and celebrate together. There will be single-track talks on Thursday and Friday and an all-day open space unconference on Saturday. For more information, visit www.moonconf.org. Closure Sync is a new conference by the creator of PurelyFunctional.tv, Eric Normand. Set in New Orleans February 15th and 16th of 2018, Closure Sync is all about the craft, business, and culture of programming. Go to ClosureSync.com, that's ClosureSync.com, to sign up. Lambda Days 2018 will be taking place February 22nd and 23rd in Krakow, Poland. The 2018 Lambda Days Call for Papers is now open. Submit your proposal for a chance to join José Valim, Feline Hermans, Philip Wadler, Heather Miller, and others on their stage in February. The call for talks is open until October 30th, and a research track is available as well. The last of the very early bird tickets are on sales, so get them while you can. And if you don't manage to catch the very early bird tickets, don't worry. Early bird ticket sales start on October 1st and will last for a month. For more information, to submit your talk proposal, and register, visit www.lambdadays.org. And if you know of any other conferences around functional programming, email contact at functionalgeekery.com, and I'll be happy to announce them. Also, some of you have mentioned that you would like to show your support for Functional Geekery. In that vein, Functional Geekery now has a Patreon page. If that is how you would like to show your support, you can find out more at www.patreon.com fngeekery and a giant virtual hug goes out to all those who are already supporting the podcast. Lastly, if you're enjoying Functional Geekery, please help spread the word. If you would leave a rating and or review on iTunes, or your favorite podcast director, or even share your favorite episodes on social media, I need your help to spread the word about Functional Geekery. And if there are any guests or topics that you want to hear from or about, please reach out and email guests at functionalgeekery.com, and I'll put them on my notes for future episode ideas. Thank you for listening, and for all your support. Welcome to Functional Geekery. I'm your host, Proctor, and this week with us we have David Christiansen. David, would you mind telling everyone a little bit about yourself? My name's David. I grew up in Idaho, studied philosophy at the University of Idaho, moved to Denmark as soon as I graduated, lived there for 11 years. Great place. While I was there, I became qualified to have the same educational rights as the Danes, so I got to go to grad school, which was really wonderful, and started working on programming languages with a really great PhD advisor, Peter Sestoft. 
And he was very understanding when I started veering off into strange, dependently typed programming languages and messing around with those and having fun. And I got started working on Idris, which some of you may have seen before. I did a lot of the sort of user-facing interactive stuff there, mainly because I feel like that's what I want out of a programming language, and it wasn't giving me that yet. And also I did sort of research work on metaprogramming and running side-effectful operations in the type checker and horrible stuff like that. And now I'm, I got my PhD last year. I've moved to Indiana University here in Bloomington, Indiana, where I've been working on trying to take some type theory ideas and implement them in the context of Racket, because it's, you know, the place to be if you care about metaprogramming these days. And I do. And you're on my radar from Type Theory Podcast, which you're one of the co-hosts of. Dan mentioned you in his episode when we were talking about that, and he kind of mentioned that you and him had the upcoming Dependent Types book. Uh, Idris involvement, looking into Idris a little bit and just seeing your name around that and referenced in the Type-Driven Development book. So Mm -hmm. a lot going on there, but what put you into software and then put you into functional programming to begin with? And we'll get into the going full-on Dependent Types a little bit later on, but How did you get started in software? So I was very fortunate in that my dad worked at a school and and he was part of the decision making. He was the principal, actually, and he was part of the decision making around computing in the 80s. And he didn't really understand computers, but he could see that they were important and would be important for the kids in the school. And so we got one at home so that he would at least have it around. And he never really learned to use it very much, but I got to, which was really lucky for me in the already in the late 80s when I was not very tall and had a high-pitched voice. And, you know, I used to play Reader Rabbit and that kind of thing. And so I, I really grew up. I think I was one of the youngest people to grow up with never being able to remember a time where he didn't have a computer in the house. And I enjoyed it so much that it seemed natural that when my elementary school, they had a sort of optional programming course where we would learn how to use MS-DOS GW Basic, which is the kind of basic which had line numbers. And I had a lot of fun in that. And then I kind of placed computing and programming a bit on a shelf and explored some other interests for a while. I I had it as kind of a side thing during my undergrad. My major was actually philosophy. But I had ended up with a CS minor, sort of barely. And yeah, it, it was always the thing that was kind of around in the culture that I enjoyed but didn't really commit to seriously until after I graduated and it it was my job actually in Denmark when I first moved there. So you get the early age, GW basic, line ten, print, I rock, <laughs> line twenty, go to ten. That's a far cry from dependent types and even functional <laughs> programming when sure. you're talking about all this stuff. So you start getting into software. What were the first few languages that you started to use professionally? And then what put functional programming on your radar to begin with? I think what put it on my radar originally was propaganda on the internet from Lisp people saying that Lisp was the best language and that it would change your brain and make you smarter and give you new ways of seeing the world. And as a sort of late teenager, early 20s, full of hubris, I thought this sounded like a good plan. I hadn't yet learned to be skeptical of that sort of thing. So I thought I'd go out and learn Lisp, and I really didn't do a very good job of learning it. 
I sort of persevered and eventually made some progress and then encountered more propaganda of the Haskell people sort of mocking the Lisp people. Not not really mocking. I mean, they were they were too kind for that. But, you know, talking about how wonderful purity and types were and how Lisp was an incomplete realization of the dream of functional programming. And so I thought, all right, I got to go learn this Haskell. And at the time, the only thing that really was around was the so-called gentle introduction to Haskell. And I say so-called because it wasn't that gentle. So I, I spent a bit of time sort of not really understanding Haskell and trying my best. And and I found structure and interpretation of computer programs on the internet. And so I got started with PLT Scheme at the time, is what it was called. Now it's called Racket. And I had fun with that for a few years and then did a CS minor. So I learned a bit of programming stuff there. And then originally I, my job wasn't actually doing software development. I was doing mainly tech support. You know, so I'd kind of fill up the printers in the morning and fix student computers, but I had sort of the interest in programming still. So I got to do a bit of work on trying to get like a little fire, like some redundant firewalls set up and with a little bit of shell scripts and open BSD. And that was a lot of fun. And that job over time, like they could see that I was interested in this kind of thing. So that was an internship actually in at the place where I'd done a study abroad in Copenhagen called DIS, which is a wonderful program. and. After that, they hired me to do web development for them because they, you know, I, I knew their program and they could see that I liked working with people and not just with computers. So I made a, you know, online course registration system and that sort of thing. And then I worked there until I decided it was time to go to grad school. And then it was learning really fast because <laughs> it's a great environment to do that. And it sounds like while you had a long experience of doing some programming and being familiar with computers and understanding the fact that you can control them, you weren't quite indoctrinated into some of the pure procedural languages like C that is not even object-oriented or the object-oriented languages like a Java or a Pascal or some of these others. So when you were hitting the Lisp and stuff, you were still coming at it relatively fresh and open without a lot of preconceived notions or not? So my first language was, you know, 10, print, you're dumb, 20, go to 10. And quickly, we, we actually went on to QBasic because we got some better computers in the computer lab at the school. And then the guy teaching that class tried to teach us C, which some of the students learned, but I just kind of failed to comprehend. And so I tried and failed to learn C as a child. And, you know, I had some Perl in my first year of undergrad. You know, I, I spent some time learning small talk also because of the propaganda about that being the one true way to do things that'll change your brain and make you smarter. It wasn't only functional things. So I think my engagement with programming was kind of a long, slow burn for quite a while, rather than being a sort of intense honeymoon period where I just had to learn everything about it instantly, like a lot of people seem to have. Or just even the long, slow burn, but outside of the functional programming realm where you're digging deeper into either procedural or object-oriented. And then by the time you hit your functional programming, you're like, how do I mutate something? Because that's the only way I know how to do. What do you mean functions can be values? What do you mean purity? So I guess those things were never that, they never seemed that weird, right? It wasn't like, at first there was procedural and object-oriented programming, and then you know, and that's the way everything was done. And then I discovered the the shining city on the hill where I was a weird foreigner. It was more that I feel like I was exposed to a variety of programming paradigms and they all seemed kind of related to each other. I mean, Smalltalk has blocks and Python has Lambda and that kind of thing. And 
you know, like it took a while to figure out how IO worked in Haskell and I misunderstood it for quite a while and that was okay. I, I didn't properly learn Haskell, I think, until I started working on Idris in grad school. And that's just because that's what Idris was written in. You know, and then it was just, you know, a matter of like hack on the code until the compiler accepts it and the tests pass. And so you start in on grad school. What were you going for grad school? Because you said your advisor reluctantly let you go down the dependent type route. So it sounded like you kind of started shifting over time. What was what was that evolution? He was not reluctant at all. He was always really supportive of my intellectual freedom and figuring things out for myself and following my interests. I was more worried myself that I was somehow misusing my position. So what I thought I was going to be doing as a project originally was actually GPU optimization of actuarial code, of actuarial solvency calculations. And then I just kind of didn't. <laughs> but a lot of the work that I did was sort of based around that project. So like in the US, you're often accepted to grad school. And then you have a few years where you're kind of doing general things. And then you develop your interests. And then you figure out who your advisor is. And then you go through and finish your PhD with them. In Denmark, you have a much shorter PhD program, so you're typically hired on to a particular project immediately, which has a lot of advantages in that you've got something to work on right away, so you spend less time spinning your wheels, and also you're guaranteed funding for the period of the PhD, which is a fixed period, typically three years. So if you know what you're going to do, it's good. And so the project that I was hired on was a cooperation between my university, which was IT University of Copenhagen, Copenhagen University for the actuarial department, and a private company called Ilun, which is sort of the one of the major suppliers of actuarial software in Denmark. And we were all sort of working on trying to figure out how to live up to an EU regulation called Solvency 2, which came in the wake of the financial collapse of 2008. Where, okay, so typically if you're doing a life insurance or a pension product, at least a defined contribution pension product, the way you figure out what to charge somebody is that you figure out how much you're statistically likely to have to spend based on data about how long people live and details in the policy. Like, you know, if you survive to 65, we give you this money. Or if you die before 50, then your family gets this money, these kinds of things. And in the past, what you do is you'd calculate it for each policy and then add them up for the company. And this was not sufficient because it ignored the fact that during periods of systemic problems like the financial collapse, there's a real tendency for a lot of people to want to cash in their pensions at once. And so you needed to calculate the risk for your entire portfolio when trying to make sure that your company's charging enough money to stay solvent rather than calculating the risk, assuming that the risk of someone cashing in their pension is independent of each other. And this meant that we would need to have different ways of calculating them and that kind of thing, hence the desire to run them on GPUs. But we also wanted to have the freedom to run them in many different computational models. So have sort of a declarative specification of the actuarial contract so that you know, if the rules change next year, we don't have to rewrite all the contracts. We just have to rewrite the, the interpreter that figures out the value of the portfolio. And so there was like programming language design, and we had a domain-specific language that we developed. 
and certain versions of it, there were some really bright master's students at ITU who figured out how to run that on GPUs, and it was great. And I just kind of got stuck on the whole types thing and tried to figure out how do we represent this and that kind of thing. So my first encounter with Idris was actually at a summer school in uh, at St. Andrews. So Edwin had a quick little introduction to using it, and I was getting really frustrated because it didn't have tab completion at the REPL. You know, so my first commit to Idris was adding tab completion because you know I have this philosophy that if I don't like the way a piece of free software works, I should go fix it if it's the kind of thing that's sort of within my means. And and that was fun. So, yeah. <laughs> I'm guessing the types came from dealing with the programming language side and the yeah. DSL side. And you're like, well, can I make this more expressive? Is that what drove it into that type research and a little bit of the background with Haskell and seeing what you could do there, even though you yeah. may not have been fully getting IO into things like that? It wasn't so much a Haskell background thing. It was... Like we teach our undergrad programming course at ITU using F Sharp, and Denmark has been a big center of the development of ML and ML dialects. The leader of ITU, I don't know what the title is in English, but Rekta, like the president of the university, I guess you might say, is one of the co-authors of the definition of standard ML. So types and functional programming are really in the air in Copenhagen. And it's just a thing you encounter. And the dependent types kind of came in largely because I'd been reading about them and, and not understanding them very well and doing my best to get them. And as I started to understand them more, I, I was seeing some applications in our actuarial contracts. So for example, an actuarial contract is a sort of a long-lived contract, right? So like a life insurance policy may last decades. And this means that you know money at the time when the contract is entered into is not worth the same as the same sort of nominal denomination of money 10 years later. So we're looking at things like, how can we use the type system to make sure I'm not adding $1999 to $2017 without taking inflation into account and that sort of thing. And it turns out the dependent types are not the easiest thing to implement. And the resources for new users for doing that are historically have not been excellent. They're, they're getting better. But... So then I was trying to sort of repurpose interest to do things sort of internally as a DSL, and then things went from there. And that makes more sense from an outsider perspective of just picturing odds are knowing languages, it's probably going to be a Java, C-based, Algol kind of family language that you'd be doing this actuarial stuff with. And that was kind of where it's like, so how do you go from this, some of these types, which are decently typed, to the dependent? But if you had the ML background and the ML family languages were floating all around you, making that leap to dependent types doesn't seem that big of a jump. And at least a few years ago, I mean, every student from Copenhagen University in computer science would learn standard ML as part of the basic classes. So it wasn't just ITU, right? We have these things everywhere. And the people working at this company we were collaborating with were all aware of functional programming. They have a really sort of highly educated and well-trained workforce that's one thing that they care about. And everyone there, I mean, even though a lot of their code base is C++ and C Sharp, they all knew about functional programming and they all knew the value of declarative models. I mean, many of the workers are actual mathematicians. And so being able to model these things declaratively in a way that's close to the actuarial mathematics, which in Denmark are also done more declaratively than a lot of places. 
because there's a lot of like continuous time model, like Markov models are sort of the basis for all this stuff. Whereas a lot of places they'll use like a discrete time model where you sort of cut the calendar up into equal periods and say what ha- what happens in this period. We'll treat it as a unit. So I wasn't the only types person there. I was the I was the weird dependent types guy by the end. But a lot of that was also figuring out what I was interested in, what I wanted to do, and realizing that I, as a PhD student, I did not in fact have to do entirely exactly what I'd signed up for by the end. And that makes sense because when you don't do your PhD, you hear a lot of these abstract stories about what a PhD means of having to pick a topic and having an advisor mm-hmm. and maybe you get put on an advisor's pet project, which sounds almost like an intern, and then that's your project just because, or you diverged, so I wasn't quite sure how that picture yeah. works. Yeah, so I was funded by something called Hoy Technologie Fund, which is like the Danish Advanced Technology Fund. It, it doesn't really exist anymore. It got folded into another branch or changed its name or something. But they you know, gave a specific grant for working on problems related to a particular topic. So I kind of knew that going in. And it's always just interesting to hear about some of that stuff. Yeah. Especially when you mainly come through industry to hear how the other side kind of works and how some of these projects get taken and whether or not this thing is, again, back to some of these ideas of you hear about Haskell of, well, that was just academic language. That was a bunch of people's PhD projects. Nobody's going to use that in the real world. It doesn't really get applicable. Idris is a nice concept. Some of these other dependent type things, Agda Koch, all these things are like, they're in the realm of academia right now, as opposed to being applicable, which I know is a myth, but it's interesting to hear some more examples of how industry and academia partner for some of these grants too. Yeah. And I also think it's a bit of a false dichotomy. I mean, a lot of the people who work on Idris are not in academia. They're typically not getting paid to work on it by their boss yet. But there's a lot of people who think it sounds fun. I mean, the the original JavaScript code generator was written by someone just for the heck of it to, to, I think, as a learning exercise to kind of get in and see how things worked. And my initial contribution to, to Idris wasn't, you know, I was a PhD student at the time, but it wasn't at all part of my research. It was just me trying to live up to this principle of if I don't like a piece of free software, fix it. You know, right now... Some of the, you know, even some of the maintainers are not in academia and aren't really associated with academia. So it's free software at its finest. You know, we're bringing people together from all over. And you said you kind of had a paper or two reference that came on your radar that brought up dependent types. You didn't quite get it. You went to the summer camp for Idris with Edwin. Yeah. So it was actually a more general programming languages summer school where I think Edwin taught half a day on Idris and then... Like Paul Levy was talking about Lambda Calculus and a bunch of other people as well. It was a really great thing early in a PhD to sort of get started and try to understand what's what. So with that first early exposure from like, I don't really get this. Now I've seen a little bit of Idris. What was that progression like? Because in Type Theory podcast, you're talking about Idris with these people. You're talking about a lot of these other dependent types and asking questions that I'm like, I'm interested in listening and I listen to it because... (laughs) I have no idea what it says, but at least it puts this stuff on my radar. So maybe if I hear this enough, I can start seeing how some of these things go. Yeah. What was your progression from being like, oh, this is interesting, to eventually focusing my PhD on this and now even going out and starting to see how can we do some metaprogramming with some of this racket stuff and get dependent types around racket (laughs) and go all crazy and just keep pushing the balance further and further but crazy in a good way, in the same yeah. way that 
other people have said, oh, it's crazy to write a book, which we'll get to as well. But <laughs> just the amount of yeah. the amount of push effort to do a lot of this stuff is something most people are like, where do you find the time slash energy to do all these kinds of things? So sure. what puts that drive for you? So a big part of where I had the time and energy is because I got my wages by doing so. I was employed by the university as a PhD student because they're considered employees in Denmark. And a big part of my job description at the time was learn about interesting things, which is why being a PhD student was a great job. So that really helps out a lot with finding the time and energy to work on things. And it's similar right now as a postdoc. You know, the I'm part of a research group funded by the NSF, and that's wonderful because it means that we actually do have a lot of extra time to learn new things and figure out how things work and that sort of thing. But as far as our podcast goes, the Type Theory podcast, I understand that it can be hard to follow along with because... What we wanted to do with that podcast was make the kind of podcast that we wanted to listen to. We being the three sort of hosts, the people who run the show, because there wasn't really a podcast that suited our, our interests and our needs. Like there's lots of sort of introductory tutorial things, but we really wanted something for the people who'd been past that level already and made it through that. And so you shouldn't feel bad if it's difficult to follow along with sometimes. Learning about mathematics and computer science and type theory and this kind of thing is a lot like learning a foreign language, I think. You have to spend some time just sort of getting familiar with the idioms and the ways of speaking. And, you know, you're going to feel like a fool the first few times you try to put that language into use yourself and try to understand what people mean. Because it's like when I was first learning Danish, right? I'd like walk into a bakery and be like, me bread, yes. One bread, please, yes. And, you know, the people were very understanding. But what it takes really is being in an environment where you feel like you can not be ridiculed. And I think that those environments are okay to find these days. But grad school is a great example of one. But there's plenty of independent study groups and peer groups out on the internet. Um, there's some good channels on Freenode that I hang out on sometimes where a lot of this goes on. And then, you know, don't be afraid to read something and only understand 10% of it and then come back in a month and maybe understand 15%. With regards to types, as far as using them, the big hop in my understanding came when I worked through Software Foundations, which Adam Chipala was recommending on your show a while back. That's a really, really wonderful book. It uses cock, but the ideas in it are largely universal for type theory, and it's a great way to get started. Yeah, it just it takes a bit of time and a bit of effort and a willingness to feel foolish and persist nonetheless, I think. And you covered where you got the time and some of the allowing for effort because you're like, if you get paid to, sure, you, you get paid to. Yeah, and that makes it happen faster, right? I mean, it doesn't mean that it's inaccessible to everybody else. It just means that maybe you have four hours a day to do it instead of half an hour. So you can compress what might be, you know, three years of figuring things out into six months, which is really, really nice. Yeah. And I guess the other part of that question is the energy factor. So just because you get paid to do something doesn't necessarily <laughs> mean you're going to have lots of energy or excitement about no, no. doing it. But it does mean you don't have to do other stuff to get money that takes away your, your energy, you know? Yeah. So what what about it when you started discovering the types and started saying, I'm going to go dig down further. I'm going to go dig down further. What was that thing that gives you this energy and excitement? Because even just hearing you talk, you can hear the excitement and interest of 
learning about all this stuff and putting the types in the radar that you didn't go necessarily down the GPU computation side. I think it's largely an aesthetic experience, really. You look at the way that, I guess, programming language semantics generally, but for me, for whatever reason, sort of dependent type theory just kind of grabbed me. And it's almost like some people really get into playing guitar or really get into, you know, certain types of painting or things like that. And it just kind of grabbed me. And I just think it it's wonderful. It's beautiful. I think maybe some of my taste here was shaped by doing undergrad philosophy degree in a sort of very analytic philosophy oriented department where we did have a visiting prof who did a course on phenomenology, which has actually turned out to be very helpful when reading a lot of like Paramatinov's stuff because I'd seen Husserl and those kinds of thinkers before. You know, I've had sort of this bent toward liking systems and seeing how they work and fit together and various kinds of dependent type theory are an especially beautiful system that I just really like. <laughs> and I, I don't know. I, I think that one of the dirty secrets of our field is that in order to get funding to work on things, we have to say, yeah, this is useful because it allows you to you know, get a specification from the boss and then sit down and prove that your program follows the specification to the letter. And by doing that, we can keep those pesky programmers from introducing bugs but for me, whether it's in like Haskell or Typed Racket, which is a wonderful system to work with, or Idris or these kind of things, it's really about like the joy of programming and seeing how all these things fit together. And it makes me happier. And that's really why I care about it. And I think also why a lot of the other people in the field actually care about it. You know, it's beautiful and we're lucky that it's also useful, which means it's easier to get funding than it is in like the arts or other areas, which is good for our career prospects, I suppose. And it's also good to make things that other people do genuinely find useful, that do help them be more productive or help software be more secure. But dependent type theory was not invented to make software more secure. It was invented as, uh, it was intended to be a you know a foundational system for logic and constructive mathematics. And it's super cool that it's turned out to be useful for programming too. And that's what I was wondering, because some people have, you hear about some people like, oh yeah, we came from this and we've got the scars whether it's oo or c and i found just functional regardless of dynamic versus static or i came from a dynamic language and the metaprogramming wasn't worth it but i still introduced a lot of bugs but now that i've got this there's that background so everybody has different experiences so it's kind of interesting to see what that was with you and i guess some of that aesthetic and just the putting the pieces together maybe and it's not like type theory and functional programming is the only thing that's fun. Like, I get a similar experience working with Smalltalk. I don't do it very often just because there's, you know, only so many hours in the day and my programming enthusiasm it gets pretty burned out by the time I would be getting around to that. And so I don't do it. But yeah, so one cool thing about types is how beautiful it is on paper once you learn how to read it from paper. The other thing that's cool is the sort of modes of interaction with a computer that it enables for me and hopefully for other people, to the extent that people are like me, which some of them are, I guess. Like the style of programming where I can write down a spec and sort of lean on the computer to help me get it right is something that people who haven't done a lot of work with fancy type systems don't really understand. I think you got to kind of try it out and put in some time and learn this style of working. It's not the only style of working that can get things done, but you know, it's what Edwin calls type-driven development, where you sort of write down your specification, sort of get help from the computer to do 
the boring parts of fulfilling it, allowing you to focus on the creative parts, often discovering that specification wasn't the right specification and going back and fixing it. It's really a fun way to work. And I get something similar from a lot of the old sort of interactive programming environments from the 70s and the 80s. Like, I haven't managed to actually get a hold of Interlisp to work with that. But the old Smalltalk systems and the old Symbolics Lisp machines and that construe programming as like a sort of embodied situated thing that a person is doing together with a computer as opposed to an abstract mathematical function that maps strings full of symbols into outputs, which is batch mode programming is no fun. And types are one of my favorite ways to do interactive programming. And you mentioned that way of going in that type-driven development, as Edwin calls it, and playing a little bit with Edris and going through a little bit of that book, just seeing the type holes and say, I got to type what can go in here and say, oh, you got this one thing or these three things and pick your poison. You want this? The signature's inherently this. I can write that in for you. And it's interesting to see the quote-unquote magic work. Yeah. And even if you know how the magic works, it still feels kind of like magic. And it's just wonderful being able to let the computer do what the computer is good at, which is take care of details, and let me do what I'm at least better at than the computer, which is be creative. But Idris isn't the only thing on your radar for some of these dependent types. You've got... I haven't had as much time to work on Idris lately as I used to have, which is unfortunate because Idris is a wonderful project. And you're doing some stuff in Racket, but you've also, yeah. between Type Theory Podcasts and a bunch of others, you've talked about a bunch of these other things. Is it Perl and New Perl and a couple of these other variations? There's all kinds of stuff out there. <laughs> so Perl is, is not something that I've touched since undergrad. Sorry, not Perl, P-E-R-L. I know. It's, it's very easy to make this mistake, and people listening to this show may not have ever heard of New Perl. So the two are not related, and New Perl is, is actually older than Perl. And the new isn't even new, as in as in fresh, or it's new as in the Greek letter that comes after lambda. Okay, I was thinking, because I've seen a couple of variations, and I wasn't sure if... Because I think uh, one of your co-hosts, John Sterling, is doing something with the new Perl kind of thing, and a couple of others, yeah. and there's other variations. And me too these days. John kind of infected me with that. So new Perl is the name of a system that was developed at Cornell by Bob Constable's research group. And... It was one of the first, if not the first, implementations of type theory on a computer. You know, it was in the 80s when they started it, and it's, it's still going on. And NewPerl is a style of type theory, which is very, very different from the style in Idris or Agda, and wonderful in a totally different way. So type theory is really all about equality. Like, what is equal to what? And it's through equality that we express things like, two plus two is the same as four. And we talk about like things being in a type, but what's more important is which two things are equal to each other with respect to a particular type. And the way that that caches out in most systems is that we say that types are given by the things that are in them, and then the equality between those things is generally something pretty straightforward, which is like if your program is done running then check if they're alpha equivalent, which is to say that by renaming variables, they're written exactly the same way. Or if they're not in sort of this final form, then, you know, take steps of computation until they are and then check. Maybe there's a couple extra little wiggly things around there, but that's basically how it works. 
So that another way to, to look at that is to say that a type is then defined in some sense by the rules of the language. So we say that the pair type is defined by the constructor of pairs, like cons is what they call it in Lisp, infix comma is what they call it in like Haskell. And it's kind of like in Monty Python and the Holy Grail, where they got the, the holy hand grenade in there. The number of your counting shall be three and three shall be the number of counting, you know, like, like pair is defined by cons and, and that's what there is. And then from there, you can derive, you know, how you use a value, like a pair, for example, or how you use a natural number. But they're sort of given often fundamentally by these kinds of rules. Whereas in the new Perl style of theory, rather than starting off with your types and then saying that you get your programming language by explaining what's in each type, you instead start off with a language that's very much like sort of a lazy scheme. And then you define types as predicates over these programs that describe their behavior. And by predicates, I mean like a thing that can be true or false. So one consequence of this is that lambda x, x plus one, certainly has the type integer arrow integer in that approach. And you can give it that approach pretty easily in the other styles of type theory. But it also has the type nat arrow integer. Because every natural number, you know, whenever you give it a natural number, it'll give you back an integer. And if you give it two equal natural numbers, it'll give you back two equal integers. It also can have the type nat arrow nat, because whenever you give it a natural number, adding one to it, it'll get you back a natural number. So the types are in some sense external to the programs that they talk about, rather than being built in and being part of them. And this has a lot of consequences. So one thing is that because we define types by the sort of the meanings that they have with respect to their programs, we then justify the rules of the logic with respect to those meanings, rather than saying that the rules define the types, right? We say that the meanings define the types, and then the rules have to make sense with respect to those meanings. And that means that if a rule is true, like in other words, if a rule actually does what it says it'll do, then you can add it to your logic. So you have a more sort of open-ended system. You know, a downside of it is also that you're not able to write a type checker. Instead, you have to write a proof checker. So the job of the user in a type theory like in Agda or in Idris or Coq is that they write down a type and then they write down a program. And the computer then says, your program has this type or your program does not. Or they write down a type and the computer, they sort of work together with the computer to construct a program that has that type. Whereas in the sort of new Perl style of type theory, it's different because instead the user writes down a type, but then if they want, they can write down a program, but then they need to convince the computer that the program has that type using the rules that have been demonstrated to be okay by the people who've created the system. And I think that this is an interesting approach and it's an underexplored approach. And what's cool about it is that the programming language need not be some sort of lazy scheme-like language like they use in New Perl. It can be any programming language, really. What I've been working on here at Indiana has been seeing to what extent I could bring this in and use Racket as that language. And, you know, research is hard, so I've, I've made some progress, but it's certainly not there yet. And that's what I wanted to get into is we were getting close to time and I was going to ask if there was anything else. But one of the things I wanted to cover, and we'll get there, but aside from talking about your work in Racket, is there anything else we've mixed? We'll circle back and make sure we do cover what you've got upcoming in Racket and what you're working on. But so far on all of the topics, is there anything we haven't covered or think we need to 
make mention to before we start to cover what you're doing in Rocket, because I'm sure we'll get you back on again to further expound types. But what do we need to at least bring up high level? Before I think everything's been Rocket? mentioned that's interesting. Uh, not so much the book. We probably want to mention that a little bit, but. So we'll get to the book, but I guess to start before the book, let's set some groundwork on what are you doing with Racket? You kind of mentioned you, it looks like you're taking this new Perl stuff, so it's not necessarily a typed racket and introducing dependent types on top of a typed racket, but you're doing a different approach with racket and how that's fitting. Yeah, in. so typed racket is very much along the lines of the system where you give it a type and you give it a program and the system says yes or no. And that is very useful, but it's not the new Perl approaches. So instead, my goal is to take untyped racket and use it as sort of the language of programs that these types talk about. And we haven't got that figured out yet. A thing that I think we have mostly got worked out how to do. So remember earlier I said that the job of the system is that as a user, you sort of write down a type, and then you have to sort of use the rules of the logic either to build a thing that has that type or to show that something has that type. The whole use the rules of the logic part is the part that I think we figured out a good way to do now. So that's done with what's called an LCF style tactic language. So LCF was originally a logic, logic for computable functions by Dana Scott. And then Robin Milner implemented it at Stanford as a thing where the user goes through and picks the rules and picks the rule and it's kind of tedious. So then the next version of LCF that he did at Edinburgh, which is called Edinburgh LCF, he invented a meta language, which is to say a programming language for scripting the application of these rules. So you could get the computer to deal with the details and then sort of just write a program and point it at it. And this meta language actually became ML, the programming language, eventually. We wouldn't have sort of modern type functional programming if it wasn't for these things. But what I wanted to do is rather than just sort of make another ML. In New Perl's actually written in, in Lisp, and they implemented the ML programming language in Lisp to run these proofs. But I wanted to be able to build on a lot of the great work that's been done in the racket world on sort of compile time metaprogramming. And in order to do that, you have to be running inside of the macro expander, because you have certain features of the language that are only available because they rely on features of macro expansion that are ongoing. So we had to figure out how do we take the model of execution that we have for LCF-style proofs and then run it inside of Racket's macro expander. And we've got a implementation that is not really ready for the public yet, but it seems to actually be working finally. I, I got just the other day figured out uh, how to make it run a lot faster than I had been, which makes interactive proofs a lot more fun to write. So hopefully that'll be coming to a CS conference near you in the in the next year or so. So that brings up a couple of interesting points. One is typing and macro expansion and how you transform a program into another program while still respecting the types. That might be a longer explanation. So that's actually not what we do. So at the, <laughs> the explanation is short. So if you remember, the goal here is not that we take a program that already has a type and transform it into another one. The goal here is to build the program together with the computer as part of macro expansion which is to say, run the proof in the macro expander, because then we can use things like the nice parsing libraries and things like that. Or we can reuse the Dr. Racket IDE and you know, annotate proof documents with information about what are the premises and what are the conclusions and what are the goals at each of the steps in the proof, so you can sort of scrub the mouse over and get tooltips and those kind of things. And we get to build on a lot of the great stuff in Dr. Racket there. 
And so what this work was doing was instead figuring out how to take the rules of a logic encoded as programs, which is what the LCF methodology says to do, and then make that work together with racket or scheme style macros, which are a very different way of running programs. Because the way a macro works is the macro expander, or the, the compiler, it sees a program and it says, okay, this program is a macro. And so then it calls the macro, which returns a new program. And then the compiler looks at the outermost operator and it says, you know, is this a macro? And if it's if it returned a macro, then it expands it again. And maybe this will go on forever. But hopefully you'll eventually reach something that the macro expander knows is done. Like maybe you get to lambda or or maybe you get to the number five or true or if or something that's like a built-in feature of the language. And then it goes down and macro expands all of its arguments. So this model of sending back a piece of syntax, which then the macro expander decides what to do with, getting that to work together with this style of proofs is, I think, the thing that we've got working pretty well now. Okay, I'm not sure I quite get it, but... Okay, let me let me see if I can do it better. Well, at a certain point, it may just be, for me, being so far removed from some of this type theory. Sure. Let's dig in just a little bit, though, okay? Say I've got a little type theory, and I've got two types. One of those types is Boolean, and the other type is pair AB. So I could say pair Boolean Boolean, and that's the type of pairs of Booleans. Or I could say pair of pair Boolean Boolean, pair Boolean Boolean, and that gives me four Booleans together. So the way this system would work is I would have a rule for creating this pair of Booleans, which says if the goal that the user has looks like pair A, B, whatever A and B are, then what I do is I give them back two new goals, which are A and B, which they have to solve. Once they've solved those, I take the solutions and I stick them in the, as the arguments to cons, or the thing that makes a pair. So if my goal was pair Boolean Boolean, and Boolean, I've I got two ways to make those, right? i got two rules. One of them says, if my goal is Boolean, then I can solve it using true. And the other one says, if my goal is Boolean, then I can solve it using false. And then the proof is done, right? Because there's no sub-goals, or there's no new goals that are returned. So the rules of the logic are then programs that look at the goal, and they return a potentially empty list of new goals, and a function that will take the solutions to those goals and combine them into the solution for the whole thing. And then proof tactics, that's what we call like a tactic or a proof rule. And then we can write another tactic that then pattern matches on the goal and says, well, if my goal is pair, then I'm going to use that pair rule. And if my goal is Boolean, then I'm going to use true, because all I care about is getting an answer, not which answer it is. Or maybe it chooses at random or whatever. And we know that this rule is safe if the other two rules are safe, right? And the beauty of this sort of LCF style approach is that you have the rules that you trust, and then users can then use a normal programming language with exceptions, with state, with mutability, with whatever they want to sort of script and recombine those trusted rules. And it inherits its trustworthiness from the trustworthiness of the rules. I think that's making a little more sense. Again, a little bit far removed, and yeah. we'll cover more resources in a minute about where one starts to get a better picture of these things. Yeah. Just before we get to that real quick, does that mean, is the goal that this is another racket language you write in, or is this a different racket language that you apply to whatever other racket language you have? Because racket's mm. 
got all these different languages. <laughs> yeah. How does this fit in into the larger scheme of racket? <laughs> the larger scheme of racket. I see what you did there. So right now it's actually a library. So you use it in hashlang racket. Although eventually, in order to get some of the interactive features to work more to my liking, I may end up having a separate hashlang for writing these proofs. And so you write the proofs in one language, but you could essentially apply these to any of the hashlangs in Racket. Is that the goal, or is that just a... Yeah, so eventually we'd like to have a set of proof rules that work for Racket's core language, which is to say a sort of fundamental language that everything else eventually spits out and expands into that the compiler knows how to work with. Right now, we're not at that step. We don't have the appropriate type theory for those done. The thing that we've got now is just how do we encode the rules of that thing once we get it? So it's it's still a little bit of a longer term thing. And, and maybe it won't happen. I mean, it might be too hard. We'll see. But at least if you want to do a logic in the in the macro expander, now there's a way to do it. And that's just one of those interesting questions just to see what the vision is and how far it'd be nice to push this thing. Like, oh, if you want to use type bracket, you can use type bracket and get dependent types through this other meta program versus... And I wouldn't think of it so much about here's how you get a dependent type of your type bracket program or something like that. It's more type bracket is a type system that talks about racket the way that people typically write racket. So one of its big goals, which it's succeeded at, is giving a type system where you can take the programs you wrote without any type annotations on them, give it some type annotations, and then it'll tell you where you messed up. And that's not what the goal of this other system is. The goal of this other system is to provide sort of an open-ended area in which we can do sort of arbitrary mathematical reasoning. But when that mathematical reasoning can be read as a program, it'll also spit out a program. Okay, and that makes sense. And that was one of the reasons I was wondering was whether it's Type Racket or Alexis Kings, it's either Hackett or Rascal now. I don't remember. Hackett is the new name, yeah. Okay. Because something else, I think something else was called Rascal. You got standard hash slang racket. You've got all these other variations. And yeah, and also just... like uh, William Bowman's got Kerr, which is another dependently typed language integrated into racket. And Kerr is really neat, but Kerr is more of the Agda Idris Cox style of type theory, as opposed to the sort of new Perl computational type theory style, which has been fun to explore. Yeah, and it's just racket is so broad at a certain point. Having talked with Will Bird about mini canon and talking about their micro canon and all that stuff you got matthew butterick making all his languages that racket community is so big it's just part of that is just you're doing this stuff is there the broad vision of oh yeah it'd be nice to be able to like wherever you do this or this is just another one of those kinds of things if you want to go work in this way you work in this way if you want to work in that way you work in that way or yeah so what's nice about having all these different languages that sort of are integrated together is that I can go implement this system for doing logic or doing automated reasoning or whatever, and I want to write documentation for it, I get to use Scribble. If I want to go do a talk about it at a conference, I get to use Slideshow. And things generally work together pretty well. So what I'd like to have eventually someday, if we get that far, is that you can use the type theory stuff in order to do some bit of like formally verified proven correct software for the thing you really care about that absolutely has to be exactly right because human life is on the line and then have a good way to interoperate between that and things where a bug might mean that a button on the screen is the wrong shade of purple, which, you know, you don't want it to happen, but no one's going to die. 
and figuring out how to do that interoperability. There's been some cool work done on like cock OCaml interoperability, but it's still sort of in its infancy. And that's another great thing about TypeDracket, by the way, is that it lets you interoperate with things written without the types, and it does it without making the system less safe. And there's just so much there to digest. It's Yeah, it's huge. <laughs> it's been kind of overwhelming trying to sort of get started in this world. And some of these are 20-year projects, and they're like, oh, we still got a huge long-term goal to go. And so it's just interesting to see where you approach it. And as you mentioned, all these languages, now I just have the humorous idea of dependently typed slide deck. But uh, I'm not sure that that's something you'd actually want to take advantage of. But theoretically, if you get that core language, you could have a dependently typed slide deck. If you're wanting to do a talk about how to use types for something, then that could be very nice. Because one of the nice things about Racket's slideshow library or slideshow language or however you want to construe it is that you can actually run whatever code you want inside of your slides. You know, so I did a talk a while back where I had slides that had a text editor built in that talked to the Idris compiler over a socket. And it would interactively type check your program and give it semantic coloring and give you a lot of the same features we have in the Emacs mode in the middle of a slide. So you didn't have to like alt tab away and disturb the flow of things. And also as a presenter, it's nice to have the slide and the demo sort of take care of getting all their state in order on their own. So you don't have to think like, oh, what state did I leave my editor buffer in when I alt when I'm going to alt tab to it to make it look right? And that's a big stress reliever too. And it, so, you know, like once we get our interactive prover up and going, it'll be really great to have it in the middle of a slide if we want to do a demo or teach a class or have a talk. And we covered a lot of stuff. You covered a lot of stuff probably beyond my level at this point. I'll try to do better next time explaining. Well, and that's just everybody's on their continuous path of learning. So for people wherever they are, Dan Friedman, when he, we had him on, mentioned he was working with you on an upcoming Dependent Types book, so chance to plug that. But what are the resources to be on the i4 or that are out there now? We mentioned type-driven development with Idris. Yeah. Where do you point people to? And definitely feel free to plug your own stuff. But <laughs> whether that's uh, PhD papers or whatnot, but where do you point people to to find out more and start being able to understand and get a grasp of some of these things along theorem proving dependent types and the difference between the Colic Agda, New Pearl stuff, or just in general, if yeah. if you're going to give advice, where do you throw people to? <laughs> so, uh, so right now I still point people at Software Foundations because that's a really great book to work and it's interactive and it checks your work for you and you can work through it. I haven't read Edwin's book yet, which is kind of embarrassing. I've just been, I've been busy and I feel like I, I kind of know Idris, but I really need to because then I can point people at relevant parts of that. I've heard good things about it. I think that one thing that's been difficult about a lot of the resources that exist have been that most implementations of type theory have been created to sort of be industrial strength and able to be scaled up to, if not huge problems, at least sort of medium-sized problems and, you know, hopefully bigger and bigger as time goes on because types are really fun and we want to use them for more kinds of programs. But a lot of times the core beauty of the underlying ideas can get drowned out by all of the fancy tools that you need in order to make sort of big real world research projects or industrial systems with them. And so the book that I've been working on with Dan tries to take sort of the little schemer approach, which is to say that we assume almost no background. So in, in our book, we kind of got two parts in what we've been working on. 
the main part of it is sort of here's a place to learn type theory and we want to assume that you've read like the first half of the little schemer but not a lot more than that if you know cons and lambda already then it should hopefully be enough to get started and then the last part of the book is actually digging into the implementation of the programming language we use that part's not done yet so i'm not promising anything about it but it's certainly our intention to get it there and that you have to have read all of the little schemer or at least know how to write a sort of little Lisp interpreter in Lisp, because we're kind of assuming that you can do that at least. You've seen like an environment before, like a mapping from variables to values and that sort of thing. But we're really trying to make it have as few prerequisites as possible and assume absolutely no advanced math at all, and really focus on the underlying ideas by having the environment in which they're presented be as simple as possible. And so hopefully that book will get published. We don't have a deal with a publisher yet, so right now it's it's crossed fingers. And we're hoping for the best, and I hope it'll be out sooner rather than later, also because it'll be fun to get it done. If you want to see a little preview of it, uh, and you're going to RacketCon or CodeMesh, then I'm going to be doing talks there later this year showing off parts of what we have in the book. So that's a place to get started. And I know CodeMesh is pretty good about those videos, so I'll definitely be looking for those videos because I'm not probably going to get a chance to go to either, but... And RacketCon is great about videos, too. They've actually got a Racket language for making videos now, which is a, a wonderful thing, and they use it for RacketCon. So another good place for people to who have sort of gotten over the sort of beginner phase of things and they're sort of like in the intermediate level... You know, like if you're sort of comfortable writing in Haskell or ML or Racket or something like that, then going and watching videos from the Oregon Programming Languages Summer School is also a wonderful place to see how things fit together and get lectures from top researchers that are sometimes aimed at early grad students, sometimes aimed a bit above them. But just when they say early grad student, I mean, that's sort of insider academic talk for we're not going to assume you're up on the latest research. You're going to assume you know what an inference rule is, but we're not going to assume that you've seen dependent types necessarily. And sometimes it's it's a bit intense, but they're videos, so you can pause them and watch them multiple times. And the Oregon Summer School was also a great thing for me early on in my PhD, which really made a huge leap in my understanding of how things worked. So I recommend watching those too. And I'll get links to all these resources in the show notes. And we'll definitely be keeping an eye out for any updates on the book in the future. As you said, hopefully sooner than later. But whenever that happens, yeah. I'll... <laughs> I mean, things take time. We don't want to put out something that's not ready yet. Especially because it's, you know, going to be on a pile of dead trees. And so we'd like it, you know, any anything that's wrong with it will be wrong with it for a long time. So we'd like it to be right, but... You know, I'd also like it to get out there because I've been working on it for a while now. And it's just one of those to know that it's coming out is one of those just to keep that watchful eye out, whether it's sooner or later. And because in my case, I may still be doing this by the time it's later for you all. So I hope it's like late this year, early next year that it's out. I mean, it's not <laughs> it's not like I'm thinking it's going to be a very long time. I, that's my hope. But one thing for your listeners, we haven't actually managed to find a title that makes all the stakeholders happy right now. So if, if anybody has a great idea for a title for a book about dependent types in the tradition of the little schemer, I'd like to hear it. And that's a good call to action. 
that follows on with the next sets of questions is where can people find you upcoming? You mentioned RikiCon, you mentioned Code Mesh. Yeah, that's it. <laughs> that's what I got planned right now. And then any other places for people to find you online or follow along, keep updated with some of your stuff? Faculty page, any social media accounts? Uh, you mentioned some IRT channels. My webpage is my name, so davidchristiansen.dk, so D-A-V-I-D-C-H-R-I-S-T-I-A-N-S-E-N.dk. And I think most things are linked to from there. I hang out on Freenode. There my name is Christiansen, often in the Idris and dependent type channels. If there's a little backtick after my name, it means I'm not actually logged in. That's my IRC bouncer. And I'll get those links so they don't have to come back and re-listen to the episode <laughs> or figure out where they – like, okay, where did he spell it right? Or what was yeah. – uh, I keep going to davidchristiansen.org. No, 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 DK, DK. Not yeah, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I, I didn't ever think I'd leave Denmark. So when I signed up for that address, it felt like the sort of the natural thing to have as the end. And then, you know, academic job market being what it is, we kind of have to, especially early in the career like I am, we have to expect to travel a little bit. But when I put that website up, it was basically like a blog about homebrew. So, And by homebrew, I mean the kind you drink, not the kind you run on a Macintosh. But we'll make sure to get the links in the show notes so people can come back and find out Great. more and maybe know where to submit their suggestions if they got a good idea for a title for the book yeah, as well. email is a great place. So I think we've covered everything. Is there any last thing we haven't mentioned that you want to just put out there before social media, any extra plugs into the stuff you're working on? Is there anything else that we're missing? Nope. <laughs> I think that's it. <laughs> I'd like to give a giant thank you to David Belcher for the logo. And once again... Thank you, David, for taking your time to join me today. It was a pleasure talking with you and trying to stretch my mind and get a better understanding of dependent types and type theory in general. It's always interesting to hear your podcast whenever I come across it. Any of the other kind of stuff that gets put out there, because as you said, I probably get 10 is lucky if I get 10% of it. But being able to have this exposure and say, oh, yeah, someone else mentioned that. I think I see how this stuff goes. So... Again, we'll definitely be soaking this in upon editing and probably have to listen to it at least once or two times in the future as well. So thanks for taking your time to join me today. And I'm sure we'll have to get you back on to talk more. So thank you for your time. Thanks for having me on. Until next time, this has been Functional Geekery.